Please join me and take your Bibles and turn uh, with me, if you've not already, to Luke chapter 10. Today, as we continue our studies through Luke's gospel, we'll be hearing the account of the 72 that Jesus sent out, now returning with joy, we read, beginning in verse 17, and we'll begin in verse 17 and read through verse 24. Today, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 24, you can find that on page 868 of our cart Bibles. Before we read together God's holy and inerrant word, please join me again in prayer, asking his blessing upon our study together today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts far more than just to understand the words on the page, but to know Christ. Give us the joy of being your people and of rejoicing in you. We pray in his name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Well, thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it uh, together today. Every spring in London, some 400 people gather together for an unexciting event that is appropriately named the Boring Conference. The Boring Conference is a seminar. It's all about recognizing the joy of boring things. Think all those TED Talks that you've seen, but like on tranquilizers. Uh, And their website tells us the Boring Conference is, and you can... Uh, Check it out later, Uh, but their website tells us that the Boring Conference is a one-day celebration of the mundane, the ordinary, the obvious, and the overlooked. And past speakers uh, include artists and musicians and scientists and young children, and they have uh, given their talks, their lectures on interesting or perhaps uninteresting subjects like the history of the double yellow line on the pavement. Uh, also uh, speaking on the noises made by vending machines, barcodes, toast, electric hand dryers, and the features of the Yamaha PSR-175 Portatune keyboard. Uh, The organizers go on uh, to warn you. They say that nothing of any importance will be discussed. The event is a waste of time and money. There are lots of other things that you could be doing instead. And nonetheless... The Boring Conference is now in its 10th year running, and each year uh, these talks are given to sell out crowds. In fact, they've expanded 
Uh, not just a conference, but a whole lecture series given at the London Library and a podcast uh, produced by the BBC. And if you'd like to contribute to the crowd uh, source uh, campaign, the, the GoFundMe campaign, you might be the first to receive the boring book when it's published. And this whole thing seems like the kind of thing that I wish I had just made up for a decent introduction, but it is true, I assure you. And you probably have that one weird friend who has that one weird hobby, and so you understand the way uh, that human beings tend to get overly fascinated by things that shouldn't really fascinate anybody. It seems to be a, a human, uh, a human uh, characteristic now that we are able to find joy in things that are overlooked. And I couldn't help but compare the boring conference this week. Uh, they want us to find joy in what is overlooked. I couldn't help but compare that to the way that Christ wants to make sure that we don't overlook the things that are actually joyful. You know, the way that we get wrapped up in tiny, mundane, minute things, and they absorb far too much of our time, far too much of our emotional, our spiritual energy. We watch some new show, we read some new book, and it, and it uh, just wraps our minds up, and we want to tell everybody else about what we saw or what we read, at least for a week, until the next thing. You enjoy some experience, you go away to some place, and you come back finding yourself grumbling when when vacation is over and you have to go back to work, and oh, if only the whole of your life could be as stress-free, as, as carefree and joyful as that one thing, but it seems just a moment gone by. We enjoy a glass of wine. We listen to a concerto, and we are enthralled with these things, and somehow we come to worship week in and week out, and we join our voices with other believers in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we go out of this place enthralled, enthralled with what time the game starts or what we're going to have for Sunday dinner, and we are far too easily pleased, far too easily amused by the things of this world that are passing away, and it crowds out the space that we ought to reserve, the space that we ought to have for thinking and dwelling, meditating on the things that are truly joyful. God diagnosed our problem in Isaiah 55. He said, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Your labor on that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. There's the answer. The answer for our fascination imbalance. The answer is not just to become sort of sour-faced pilgrims who are not joyful or rejoicing about anything. The answer is delight. Learning how to delight in the things that are really delightful. Learning how to rejoice in the things that ought to give believers joy. And this is what this whole passage is about. We see Christ teaching us to rejoice in what is joyful. As we examine the passage, there are three distinctly Christian joys that I'd like to draw out for us today. The first thing we see is the joy of sharing Jesus' victory. You see that in verse 17, right at the beginning, the 72 return with joy. They return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, right here at the beginning, we need to deal with, with perhaps a misunderstanding or, or just a difference uh, in translation and uh, in application here, because some people uh, see this as the disciples returning with a joy that they should not have. 
They've gone out, they've ministered in Christ's name, they've done wonderful things, and the Lord enabled them to, to do powerful things for the gospel, and demons are fleeing, and then we surmise, as he said at the beginning of chapter 10, that bodies are healed and the gospel is preached, and they come back ecstatic with what has happened. And some people look at this and, and say uh, that, that this is something they ought not to be excited about, because doesn't Jesus say in verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. So some people, people that we respect, people that I've read this week, that I love to read their, their uh, comments on Scripture, and, and some people say, well, this is a warning, really. Jesus mentions the fall of Satan to remind us just how uh, often pride comes before a fall. And so don't get uh, puffed up with your ministry, disciples. That's what, what some would say. They take it as, as a sort of warning against the, the dangerous excitement in ministry accept, uh, success. I think it's better uh, to understand verse 20 as one of Jesus' comparative statements. And you have to keep reading there to the end of the verse. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather, instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a comparative statement. Jesus does this all the time. And he uses stark language to give us uh, two poles and, and one uh, that we ought to emphasize and one that we ought to de-emphasize, but maybe not necessarily get rid of. Luke chapter 14, we haven't gotten there yet, but Jesus is going to tell great crowds that are following him in Luke chapter 14 that unless someone comes to me, and if anyone comes to me and, and does not hate his own father and his mother and hate his wife and his children, hate his brothers and his sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he can't be my disciple. That's a comparative statement, right? It's not a Christian virtue to despise your family, not to despise yourself. Christian Husbands are called specifically to love their wives, but Jesus is comparing loyalties. He's saying, if you're going to come after me, there ought to be this, this grand overarching loyalty that eclipses all other earthly loyalties, and by comparison to this first primary great loyalty, everything else ought to sort of fade in the background, and that's what he's saying here. Don't just rejoice, we might say. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are in heaven. There is this grand overarching joy that ought to make everything else fade into the background, but, but he doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't rejoice when God is at work in his people. It's a comparative statement. And so you, you notice, really, that the disciples aren't filled with pride at all. They're not excited about themselves. They're excited about the power of Jesus' name. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, and it seems demons as well. Because they went out and they ministered, and they went as ambassadors in the name of Christ, and there was no spiritual enemy, Jesus says, that was able to stand in the way of their ministry. They returned in joy because the Lord had enabled them to share in the victory that he is working over the forces of Satan and darkness. And there is incredible joy in that. There's no shame in taking joy in that. That's often the way it happens for those who, who are given a chance to embark in some sort of ministry, do some sort of uh, something for Jesus and see the way that he is uh, furthering his gospel through them. That's the way it happens very often. That's the way it happened for me. I was still a, a pretty young man. I was still in high school, and I began to wonder if maybe the Lord was 
calling me into ministry. And, and part of that sense of calling, that inward sense of calling, came from the way, uh, and not to be prideful, but the way it seemed like the Lord was using me to minister to others. I, could, I wasn't even old enough to, to drive a car yet, didn't even have my license, and yet in, in some of my conversations with, with other folks, people were coming to know the Savior. I would speak and I would share the gospel and people were believing and I was, uh, I was given this, this uh, message in a sense, not some sort of hokey woo-woo, but the, the, uh, the, the word of God that I could share with others to go and to reconcile and even the people that I had, had alienated by my own sin, I was able to approach and seek their forgiveness and they forgave and they began attending church with me. And what a wonderful thing. And there's this incredible joy when you see, I, I wasn't driving out demons, I wasn't you know, healing bodies, but there was a sense that the kingdom of darkness was, was increasingly, or, or decreasingly rather, holding sway over, over God's people. And there was this sense of sharing in God's victory, and there was an incredible joy in it. It was a joy that made me say, maybe I should do this for the rest of my life. Maybe I should move to New England and see if a group of people will pay me to do this for the rest of my life. And here we are, years later. Well, there's a joy in these things, in, in, in realizing that as we serve Christ, He enables us to have a share in His kingdom victory. And in fact, that's, I think that's the point of verse 18. The disciples return uh, with joy in Jesus' name, and the Lord tells them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, that brings up a question. The obvious question is when, right? When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning. Maybe he's talking about the, the fall of Lucifer in, in the sort of pre-creation, pre-history. Maybe he is talking about that, uh, that time that the most beautiful, most glorious archangel tried to leave his place and usurp the glory of God. Maybe he's talking about that fall from heaven. Maybe he's, he's saying something prophetic. You know the way the prophets very often say, here's what's going to happen in the future, but they speak of it as something that's already happened. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's giving them a glimpse at the end game. He's encouraging them with the way that at the cross, the serpent's head will finally be crushed under Jesus' heel. Maybe he's encouraging them that there is a day that, that Satan, who has fallen already, will eventually be cast into that pit that burns with fire day in and day out, forever and ever, we read in Revelation. Maybe he's encouraging them with that fall. Or maybe it was something that happened while the disciples went out. John Calvin uh, was of this view. He said, the thunder of the gospel makes Satan fall like lightning. So maybe while they went out and they preached God's truth, maybe the power of the evil one to deceive the nations was being weakened. Maybe that power of the prince of the air that we spoke about in our confession of sin today, maybe he was being toppled from his throne as the gospel went forth. Which is it? Is it the prehistory? Is it the, the future history? Is it the now history? And, and there's a little bit of ambiguity uh, in this passage, and I think for good reason. You see, all these truths are there in Scripture if you want to search them out. And, and from beginning to end, really, the Bible teaches us about the overall downward trajectory of, of Satan and his dominion. The one who fell into condemnation at the first is falling now as the gospel goes forth and will fall finally at the last day into hell's burning abyss. And that's why John tells us, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
In other words, Jesus came to work victory over Satan. Jesus came to break free those whom Satan has kept in bondage to sin and death. Jesus came to smash the skull of the ancient serpent. Jesus came to work victory over Satan. And when Jesus' disciples returned, amazed at the power of his name, he says, let me tell you what's really happening. Satan is in the process of swan diving into an empty pool. He is coming into great ruin. He will will one day be completely vanquished, but for the time being, what you experience as you minister in his name is a foretaste of the final victory. The victory that God's kingdom will have over the domain of the darkness. And there is joy when God's people get to minister in his name and take part and have a share in the victory of Jesus. And this isn't actually just a joy that is reserved for apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and missionaries and Sunday school teachers. This is a joy that that God's people experience every time faithful believers open their mouths to share the truth of the gospel. Whether the, the people you're speaking to believe or don't believe, whether they are softened or whether they are hardened, there is a victory being won, and the Lord is gathering into his barn his wheat, and he is gathering on the threshing floor those weeds to be burned, and there is a victory, and when we partake in that, we get to share in the victory that Jesus is working, and we ought to rejoice in that. There's a joy in seeing kids who grow up in Christian homes come to the place where they say, you know, actually, this Christ that my parents have have proclaimed to me for years, this is my Savior. He is my Lord. And there's a joy in that. There's a joy that Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. You know what a triumphal procession is? It's a victory parade. Thanks be to God who leads us in a victory parade and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. What a joy to be the fragrance of Christ in the world. To be part of His victory parade as He leads His people through this life and to Himself. What a joy to be able to share in Jesus' victory. We ought not to be ashamed of that or or balk at it or say, oh, no, 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 We, we don't want to take part in that. There is joy in sharing the victory of Christ, but it brings us back to verse 20. There is a far greater joy. It is the joy of being Christ's people. Verse 20, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is one of the most familiar images in Scripture for the security of our salvation. We find it in Exodus, we find it in the Psalms, we find it in Daniel, we find it in Philippians, we find it in Revelation. Oh, the new, all over the place, this image that God has a book, some sort of a a heavenly register where He records those who are His, and He keeps them, and He knows them, and He remembers them before Himself. It's an image, it's, it's an illustration taken from local governments. Because you know the way that kingdoms work. Kingdoms survive on the backs of two things, military service and tax revenue. If you want to keep both of those going, you better keep uh, pretty accurate records. And so every township had a registry. Every magistrate 
had a book. Every emperor loved to know the number of his citizens so that he could see the strength of his empire, so that he could know the taxation that he was able to levy and and the revenue that he was going to bring in. So kingdoms everywhere kept accurate records. But the books also recorded those who had the rights in the kingdom. Who were the citizens who could claim all the rights of citizenship? Who were the people who had made covenants with the king? Who were the heroes that were to be remembered for generations? And that's closer, I think, to what Jesus has in mind when he, when he speaks about our names being written in heaven, when the Bible speaks of God's book. It's not, it's not just a book that, that God keeps to, to remember what he expects to gain from us, right? How much revenue from this congregation and from that member? And not just a book that he keeps to remind himself, oh, they ought to be uh, hard at work for me. It's a book that he keeps to document those who have a claim to the eternal riches that are stored up in Christ. It's a book that he keeps, a, a list of his people who are safe on that day of judgment. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. John tells us that on the last day, the book of life will be opened the day of God's judgment. And John says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so there's this heavenly book. There's this registry. And all throughout Scripture, God reminds us that he remembers the people whose names are written down. They are his people. They are his heavenly citizens. Those are the children who have a right to spiritual treasure that is laid up where no moth and no rust destroys, and where no thief breaks in to steal. And I think this is what Jesus says when he says we ought to celebrate the joy of being his people. More than any other earthly joy, we ought to rejoice in the joy of belonging to him, of having this inheritance that is kept for us, undefiled, unfading, unperishable, kept in heaven. We should rejoice in the heavenly registry more than we rejoice in earthly success. It doesn't matter how how wonderful, how astounding our earthly successes and our earthly joys are. There is a day when they will all pass away. Every joy of this life will one day be gone. Joys of sex, money, possessions. The joys of of promotions and personal achievements, the the joys of weekend getaways and raising a family, they're all going to evaporate. There's even a day when the joys of Christian ministry will be no more. Never think about the fact that there is coming a day when there will be no more need for evangelism. There will be no more conversions. There will be no more defending your faith against the skeptics, skeptics, if that's the kind of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. And I know there are some here that do. The day is coming, says Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 34, when no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. There is a day that's coming when God's great gathering work of the victory of Christ will be complete. And even the joys of sharing in His victory in this life will pass away. And on that day when earthly delights are gone, the greatest joy will be the one that lasts forever. The one that never falters. The joy of being God's people. Of having your name written down in the Lamb's book of life. That, Jesus says, is what you ought to rejoice in. 
And that presents a little bit of a problem for us, I think. Think about the fact that, that these disciples returned filled with joy. Why? Because of the things that they saw. They went out and Jesus gave them promises. That this is how it's going to work. You're going to go, you're going to preach, you're going to probably drive out some demons, you're going to heal some bodies, you're going to come back and tell me all about it. And they go out and they had immediate verification of exactly what Jesus had told them. We can't believe it. It happened just as you said. Even the demons flee from us wherever we go. They came back and they were excited because of what they saw. And when they came back, Jesus says, I've got something even better for you. I've got a joy that will never pass away. I've got something that you can rejoice in, in every circumstance of your life. I've got something that is going to surpass everything you are happy about at this moment. I have a joy for you that will last forever. It's the joy of knowing that your name is written down where no human mind can penetrate and verify. Your name is written down with God in heaven, where no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. They come back having seen wonderful things, and Jesus says, actually, the greatest joy is something you can't see yet. And that presents a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? It presents a problem for those of us who live in bodies, <laughs> who find our way through a world made of sensory perception, and we wake up with pains and with fears and enormous lists of things to do. We wake up and our schedules are full of, of math homework and soccer practice and getting dinner ready. Our days are filled with a world that wants to remind us that the only rational way to get through the world is to walk by sight. Focus on what you can see and taste and touch and smell. Focus on the things that are concrete that you can put your hands on. And Jesus says the greatest joy is something you can't see yet. And we feel sheepish taking him at his word. C.S. Lewis talks about this challenge. Eighty years ago, he wrote, we are very shy nowadays. Probably even more in our age. But 80 years ago, C.S. Lewis said, we're very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. <laughs> we are afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky. We're afraid of being told that we're trying to just escape the duty of making a happy world here and now. That's the issue, isn't it? All of our problems and all of our struggles are so real to us. And Jesus comes with this promise of something that we haven't seen yet. And we're afraid to believe him. We're worried that if we focus too much on the joy of heaven, that the world is going to think that we're unrealistic. We're somehow escapist. Never mind the fact that our culture has now come to the place where someone can give a lecture on the history of the double yellow line and it attracts admirers and you preach the joy of eternal heaven and what do we get? Ridicule. How upside down are we that we would focus on the mundane and the overlooked and take joy in these little things and neglect what Christ is promising us? Well, C.S. Lewis keeps going. He says, either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. And if there is, then this truth, like any other, must be faced, whether it's useful at political meetings or no. This is a challenge for us. 
to believe that the greatest joy of being God's people is something that we can't see yet. Even when our world presses around us with all of the, the pains and troubles and the things that we feel oh so closely to ourselves. This is a challenge. And I think that's why Jesus gives us verse 20 in the form of a command. Rejoice, he says. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Rejoice, he commands his people. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Knows how hard it's going to be. Your flesh is going to push back against it. The world is going to think that you're crazy. Your sin is going to try, you to try to get you to focus on anything less significant than this primary joy. And Jesus says, rejoice. This is the greatest joy the human heart can know. That you are one of God's people. That your name is written with Him in heaven. It's the joy of being a part of His people. There is no greater delight than trusting the promise of 1 Peter 1, verse 3, that according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You can't see it yet. My dear Christian, rejoice in the joy of being part of God's people. Rejoice in the joy of sharing in Jesus' victory. Rejoice in the joy of seeing Jesus' glory. This is our final point today. It's the joy of seeing Jesus' glory. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover with this last point, but it's okay because beginning in verse 21 to the end, it all deals with one theme. And that theme is God's sovereignty over salvation. Notice verses 21 and 22, they give us a prayer from Jesus' lips to the Father. Verses 23 and 24, they give us blessing from Jesus' lips to his disciples, and in both, the central ideal uh, is God's choice to reveal Jesus to those whom he has chosen and when he has chosen. The central theme is, is God's sovereignty over salvation to make some see the glory of Christ. Take a look at verse 21 in that prayer. It, it answers, to whom? It says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You know, several times in the scriptures we find uh, that Jesus was overcome with emotion. Several times we read that Jesus wept. Twice we read that he was angry. Only once we read that he rejoiced. It's the only time this is used explicitly of Jesus. He was a joyful person. He, he wasn't a, a dour-faced uh, person who walked around upset all the time. But only once we find that he re rejoiced. He exulted in the Holy Spirit, it might be said. And what was it that caused him to rejoice? He rejoiced in God's sovereignty to reveal the glory of Christ to those whom he chose. It says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now the wise in this verse are the wise in their own eyes. Those who distrust the Lord with all their heart, those who lean wholly on their own understanding, who refuse to acknowledge him and to walk in his ways, those who think that, that by their own 
understanding and their own uh, intellect. They can choose for themselves what is spiritually good and right and true. Those that are spiritually proud, Jesus says, no, the Lord has hidden. He has concealed the truth of these things from those who are spiritually proud. And then he has revealed it to those who are like little children in the eyes of the world. That's the point of verse 22. The same theme goes on. No one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There's a choice happening here. The Father and the Son are making a distinction between who will receive knowledge of Christ unto salvation and who will be passed over. Why would God choose such a thing? It tells us. Because it pleased Him. Because it was his gracious will. Because it pleased God to receive all the glory for the salvation of his people. That he should not only be the savior, but he should be the chooser as well. That he should be the initiator, the author and perfecter of our salvation. The one who begins it, the one who carries it to completion. It all comes from his hand. It's all of him. And he's the one who chooses and initiates and brings salvation to his people. He reveals to whom he chooses. He hides from whom he chooses. I realize there are a lot of people, and there may be some in this room, who do not like this doctrine of predestination. There was a time when I didn't like this doctrine. I didn't believe it, and quite frankly, I didn't want to believe it. But my, the beginning of my love for this doctrine, and I do love it now, the Lord has changed my understanding of these things. The beginning of my love for this doctrine started when, when I realized that this is simply scripturally true. I had to, to face up to it. Just as the, the reality of heaven, you can take it or leave it, there is either pie in the sky or there is not, says C.S. Lewis. Scripture presents us over and over again with the reality of God's sovereign choice and salvation. And there are many places that we could go and we could see that in Scripture. We could turn to Ephesians 1. We could turn to Romans 9. We could turn to John chapter 10. We could turn to lots of different places. But perhaps the best way to see this is to realize that this is the necessary companion to the doctrine that we've just seen. We just spent a bunch of time talking about God's book, his, his registry in heaven of those who are his. And the question arises in our minds, is, is that book merely descriptive or is it determinative? Do you understand the difference? Is God merely describing who we are or is he determining who we are? If we can, if we can say that in, in those sort of loose, non-theologically uh, accurate terms, is it descriptive or determinative? John James Audubon traipsed out into the woods with a gun and a bunch of snares, and he brought home dead birds into his studio, and he posed them, and he painted them. He filled whole books with chickadees and warblers and redbreasts, and he gave us all of these plate after plate after plate of all of these birds that we love to see, and we have a great understanding of, of all the birds of North America because of John James Audubon, but all he could do was describe. He could look at what he saw, and he could paint it for us, and he could show us what it is. And many people think that that's what God's book is like, that God looks out over the sea of humanity and says, uh, well, that one might, yeah, and that one. Uh, and that one, and, and I think they'll choose me. And so uh, based on that knowledge, that understanding, I'll write that down. But that is not the way that Scripture presents God's book to us. Take a look with me. Turn to, to Revelation chapter 13. 
Here's the point at which your pastor should have marked his page so he could find it before you did. Sword drill, Revelation chapter 13. It shows up in verses 7 and 8. This is speaking of the final beast, you see there in the ESV with the heading. Verse 7. Also it, that is the beast, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who will worship the beast? Those whose names have not been written down before the foundation of the world in the book of life. Jesus told, his, told the Pharisees, rather, John chapter 10. He said, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He does not reverse it. He doesn't say you're not among my sheep because you don't believe, although that is true. He traces the first cause. He says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. The Lord has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. He's revealed them to little children. It's scripturally true, and so we need to ask ourselves, what does the doctrine of God's sovereignty over salvation mean? Well, it means joy. Not the, not the self-centered joy, not the smug joy of thinking, well, I really made a good choice there, didn't I? I was smart enough to make the right decision, while all those who are perishing just haven't gotten it yet. Not that kind of smug joy. It, it's the it's the God-centered joy. It's the, it's the grace-filled, thanksgiving joy that receives God's grace and His salvation as a gift. It's the joy that says, my name has been written down before the foundations of the world in the Lamb's book of life, and I could do nothing to receive this except that it please God to reveal Christ unto me. To give me the joy to see the glory of Jesus. That's what he's praying here. This is what makes Jesus rejoice that some are given the gift of seeing the glory of Jesus. And then look back, Luke chapter 10, verse 23. We see this blessing. Not only is God sovereign over to whom He will reveal Christ, but when He will reveal Christ. Verse 23, Jesus blesses the disciples because they saw what kings and prophets longed to see and never did. Christ's saving work was being revealed to them. And it might seem as though they're all just caught up in this, this grand coincidence. Except for the fact that Scripture tells us that Jesus didn't come into the world under a, a coincidence. It says that God sent His Son to be born of a woman in the fullness of time. It's a theological category. The, the fullness of time is God's perfect timetable. The one that He chose specifically to reveal the Son of God to the world. And it came, you might think, for many of the prophets and the kings who longed for it at the wrong time. It came 1,900 years after God told Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the nations. It came 1,000 years after God told David that his son would sit on the throne of Israel forever. It came 700 years after Isaiah foresaw the righteous branch who would be bruised and crushed for the sins of God's people. It came 400 years after uh, Malachi foretold the Lord who had suddenly come to His temple and Jesus came in the fullness of time, even though a whole slew of righteous men and women longed to see it and were not able to. He came at just the right time. 
He was sent to that place. He was sent into that time to work salvation for all those who were looking forward to him and all of us who now look back to him. It ought to be an encouragement for us. It ought to be an encouragement for all of us who are still waiting to see promises that we can't see with our eyes yet. Ever realize that while you wait for that promise of heaven, you're an awful lot like Abraham. You're an awful lot like Jeremiah. You're an awful lot like Josiah. You're an awful lot like all the kings and all the prophets and all the righteous men and women of old who looked forward to something that they didn't see yet. But Jesus came into the world not just to work salvation, and he did, but also to prove that God always fulfills his promises at just the right time. And so Jesus said, blessed are you, my disciples, my 72, who see what you see. The greatness of God, the glory of God revealed in Christ. Blessed, too, are you who see that with eyes of faith. Though you have not seen him, him, says Peter, and you long for him, you wait with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as you wait for the revealing of him, obtaining the outcome of the faith, your salvation of your souls. Blessed are the eyes that saw Jesus. Blessed are the ears that heard his voice. Blessed, too, are you who hear him, and see him by faith. We haven't seen him yet. But by God's sovereign choice, we have believed. What a joy to see God's glory through Jesus by faith. What a joy to have a share in the victory of Christ our Savior. What an eternal, everlasting, unfading joy to be his people. Dear friends, what a joy to know Jesus. That's the source of our joy, the greatest one we can ever know. All the the mundane and the overlooked and all the small things that we get so wrapped up in, what a joy to be a Christian. To know that Jesus is our Savior and we are His. Won't you rejoice in prayer together with me? Gracious and righteous Lord, we thank You for this, Your Word, Your truth to us. We pray that our hearts would believe it unto the saving of our souls, and that we would rejoice forevermore in your presence. Thank you for this table, which points back to your sacrifice, which reminds us of the age to come when all the ages will fade away, and yet we'll still stand before your throne and see you as you are and rejoice in the joy of knowing Jesus. We pray that you would help us to do that even today, to catch a foretaste of your victory and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.